Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you're in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on a rainy autumn day here in the capital is Angela Carney. Angela is the owner of Carney Consultancy Limited, a health and safety consulting and training company specialised in the construction sector. Um, Angela, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. Morning. And thank you very much for having me today. It's a great privilege. It's a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us as well, Angela. Um, At this point in the programme, normally we dive straight into the topic of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate we approach the subject matter from that angle. Because for leaders within all walks of life, it's proven to be such an unprecedented challenge. But for yourself and your business, just to what extent has it actually affected things? Well, it was an interesting time. Um, Obviously, nobody, I don't think, could have predicted it. March was actually our busiest month of the financial year. Um, But we'd been following the news. um, And on the 16th of March, we'd start putting people out to work from home. Working from home wasn't necessarily that unusual. We often did do it with people. Um, But we started then getting all the staff out working from home. So when the 23rd of March hit, we were sort of prepared. But I will say it was like somebody had hit the emergency stop button um, and our work literally dropped off a cliff we, by 95%. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, as a lot of people I think know, construction didn't necessarily stop. But of our client base, probably 50% sort of continued to work and 50% stopped. But certainly, obviously, training had to stop. Um, and going out onto construction sites was a big no-no for the first month or so. Um, so what we did is very quickly realised that with this 95% drop and nobody knowing how long it would go on for, we put 70% of our staff straight onto furlough. And sort of between the rest of us, we managed the business. Um, and then from May, we started to bring people back um, and things have started to creep up since then sort of thing. We, mm. we definitely learned to diversify. Um, which um, was definitely what saved us, not saved us like we were going to disappear, but definitely helped us get back on our feet in March, even though we're construction specialists, believe it or not, we were training dentists, um, Mm. loveliest group of people you could ever meet. They were really lovely. Um, But we we trained um, about 70 dentists in um, how to be uh, what's called face fit testers, you know, for the um, face fit, RPE mm. that you have to wear the face mask. Um, so that's what made the difference for us. Um, I mean, our, we're back training. So we were back training from sort of the end of May, um, but on a 50% reduction on capacity so we could get the social distancing uh, and everything else. We did try the online training um, and we do have an online training um, part of our business, which obviously really took off for certain courses. But um, the CITB, who the Construction Sea Training Board, who uh, sort of managed some of the training courses, wanted mm-hmm. everybody to go online certain courses. 
a lot of our industry just couldn't get to grips with it. And they just said, look, let us know when you're back in the classroom, we'll come in then. Mm-hmm. So we did a couple of those and then sort of realized it wasn't for us or the delegates. And so we went back in the classroom, like I say, on reduced numbers with sort of measures in place. That's the thing, isn't it? Um, the remote provision, particularly of training, it does work in some cases, but it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach, is it? So when we talk about our working practices, having wholesale changes and going toward the remote side of things, there's always going to actually be a place for conventional classroom environments and conventional office environments because sometimes nothing can replicate being there in person having that human social contact as well especially and i think therefore the workplace of the future that we're going to see is probably going to be a blend of the two isn't it oh definitely i don't think you can do everything one way or the other and i don't think that that works i mean especially for the training is you know as we know everybody learns in totally different ways and that's the point of being in a classroom with Pete, with a trainer who who is suitably uh, trained and experienced, they will know with the delegates they have in that room how that they, they will learn differently and be able to change things to adapt to that. Online doesn't necessarily give you that ability, but it does definitely have a place. I agree with that. It certainly does, I think. And um, one thing I wanted to sort of ask you about how managing the last few months has been as well from a leadership point of view is how it's been sort of managing the mental health and well-being side of things, because those are issues that have been amplified by the uh, the pandemic, of course. And we've all seen the value of having that contact with each other as we've been allowed back into workplaces. Um but how has it been, not just, of course, safeguarding the well-being of everybody that you've been working with, Angela, but also that of yourself as well? Because we often hear that phrase that it is lonely at the top. And when leaders are having to step up during a crisis and be beacons of inspiration, keep people motivated and reassured, crucially, that can all become very mentally taxing. Uh, yes, it certainly can. Um, I think... A lot of leaders will probably be like me, and I think at this point we'll probably be quite exhausted because you have to continue no matter what. I think it's being able to admit that you're human, even though you're leading people, and that you will have wobbly days. Um, I think if you've got a, a great team behind you, they will also accept that, and sometimes will. I've got an operations manager and other staff who will occasionally go, just step back a little bit. And I think you have to learn to do that a little bit. I think you then have to sort of say, right, okay, reboot, let's keep going. And you've got to be positive and you've got to be focused because the one thing I totally believe in is um, some people have heard of what's called the laws of attraction. Whatever you think about, whatever you put out is what you will attract back to you. Uh, I mean, during this time, we have still um, in the last quarter um, sort of looked at gaining 12 new clients, which, you know, is a real positive. And you've got to keep giving the positive message out to everybody. You've got mm. to be honest, I think. Um, you've got to learn to plan. And I'm, luckily, I'm really good at planning. It's one of my things. But I've never made as many plans and replanned as I have during this time. Mm. But communication, I think, has got to be the, the main key. Communicating with your staff. Um, so, I mean, part of the reason we brought some people back when we did is they were single in a flat. Um, and it just wasn't a good um, a good mental health um, option for them. Um, I mean, I spoke to all my staff at least weekly to check on them. Um, we had sort of quizzes, WhatsApp groups, and we sent around a lot of things to make people laugh. And I sort of picked up who wasn't participating and then checked on them separately. 
Um, these are all the things that if you keep yourself right, then that helps keep your staff right. Because there's some one of the um, during this time, I've done a lot of walking, meditation, positive reading, and one of the things is if you make sure that you are right and you are okay, then you have the capacity to look after other people too. And thinking about looking after other people, there are a lot of youngsters out there, especially that are probably looking on at the economic situation and what COVID has done to their employment prospects and are probably very downhearted by all of this. As a business leader yourself, do you have a message of encouragement for them to really get them to pick up their heads and recognise that there are opportunities despite all of this? Uh, Yeah, I mean, one of the people that we didn't furlough actually was our 16-year-old apprentice. Uh, because I didn't want her head to go down um, during this time, and she'd only been with us since the November. Um, and actually, it has brought her on brilliantly, and it has taught us, actually, some of these young people out there are absolutely brilliant. Um, and I think one thing I'm seeing, and I, I think will happen, is um, some people in the older generation will possibly maybe retire a bit earlier, which will then mean that there are you know, as people go up the tree, those opportunities then do open. I would encourage um, other employers to really, really think hard and bring on the apprentices and bring on the young people because they are our future. They are the next, you know, generation. It's really important that we invest in them the time and the the money to bring them through. Um, And I do think that there's opportunities. And personally, I can see those opportunities even in our small company in the future. And thinking about the uh, the future, um, Angela, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, um, what is it that you're hoping to achieve over the course of the next 12 months if we pretend we have a crystal ball and can look that far ahead? And where is it exactly that you want yourselves to be um, at that time and in, um, in next year? Because um, over the course of this uh, next few months, we know we're going to have a little bit of a tricky winter ahead, but as well as that... Um, there is still going to be a need, for, especially for health and safety consulting and training, because even when we do hopefully, fingers crossed, have a working vaccine, it's not going to be a magic bullet that's going to make all of this go away. And particularly with COVID secure procedures, there's going to be a need for a lot of that as well over the course of the next few months continuously. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, our, our turnover is down 20% on last year. However, um, right at the start of this, when employees were obviously looking to me for answers, my, the one thing I said was, I'm not worried. We will be here in five years. How we are here, I can't tell you, but I'm not worried in that long-term sense. We are making no redundancies um, because I totally believe that if you've invested the time and the money in those people and uh, the skills, it's important to retain them. Um, a wise woman once said to me, you can cut back so far but you um, you can grow endlessly. And I would encourage a lot of other people to really look at that. Um, we are intending to get back to where we were in turnover in the next 12 months, without a doubt, uh, by focusing on what we do best and just keep focusing on that and being positive and looking for every opportunity. And that's the thing, you have to look at every potential opportunity. We want to create more opportunities. And I'll be honest, I haven't got a crystal ball. You're quite right. I think the winter will be hard. I think there's a lot of construction contracts that are waiting um, to be finally given the go-ahead. But I think if the government stick to their word, build, 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 that will happen. We have a massive Mm. skill shortage in construction, and I'm hoping that that is filled by people retraining. Um, And then I think come the spring, we are already looking at potential people uh, to bring into our company 
um, to, to grow further um, because I, I think that construction is a fantastic industry. I think it gets a bad reputation sometimes, but it's brilliant. Um, and I think that there's a lot of people hopefully will come in. But I do see that it, it's going to be tough. I can't sit here and say it won't, but I do think it, you know, in the end it will work out. It is an interesting time, isn't it? Because despite the crisis, there are going to be so many people who are looking for work now, who are going to be willing to upskill and go into different industries. And this could be a time to finally address some of the long-standing recruitment shortages that the construction sector has seen. Angela, you are absolutely right. Out of every crisis does come an opportunity. I've got to say, I love the positivity from you today. It's absolutely infectious. And I think when morale is low at a time like this, we do all need a good dose of that. And I think as well, just give and how nice it's been having you join us on the programme today to talk about some of your views and your ambitions. I think it would be great to catch up at some point in this next year and welcome you back on just to see how things are really starting to bear fruit. Brilliant. Yes, I would love to do that. I thoroughly welcome that opportunity, Angela. Really enjoyed having you on the programme today. And uh, most importantly as well, until we do get to touch base again in future, hopefully, do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on. And I would extend that well wish to every single one of you um, at Carney Consultancy and everybody associated with the business too. Thank you so much for having me today. And it's been really interesting. Look forward to catching up. Likewise, Angela, thank you ever so much. So grateful for your time. And I would like to extend that final message there to everyone tuning into the podcast today as well. Do please stay well and look after yourselves and do be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives during this time. Um, Next up on the show today, um, we're going to be joined by Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's former cricket captain, Sir Andrew Strauss. Now, during his playing career, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England skippers to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test wins for an England captain in history. Since retiring from playing, he spent a period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has also become a champion for charitable and mental health concerns. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew. And that is, of course, coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, but blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people, it was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career. Full stop. And um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity, and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets, and there was my chance, and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to? see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it. But I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game, and I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. um, To have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that. But if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure was like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know I think it's easy to forget how 
how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room. For the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment; that was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those situations. Um, And when managing 
a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to com 
completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired Another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women 
young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers they, anyway no, i think but um no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. 
And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.